start with, we'll just look at John 17, because it's one of our text verse verses today. Several announcements, which my gift of communication does not cover announcements, so bear, bear with me. First of all, the ladies are planning a bus trip to the Sight and Sound Theater in Lancaster, PA, to see the production Jonah. We'll let you know how that is, by the way, ladies. We're going to go there. And this event will be on Monday, October 9th. And there's an information and sign-up sheet at the table. If you're planning to attend, Bruce and his mom, Marilyn, gave me a wonderful review on that. So please let Joanne or Kim, as Joanne Stewart or Kim Buck, know as soon as possible so that tickets and bus seats can be reserved. And that, that, from what I've heard, is a phenomenal production. In fact, one of my announcements has to do with that. Also, tomorrow night, and I was, I think I got the time right, our own Steve Dzvonik will be hosting a discussion, and that will be at the Eaton Park at the Waterworks Shopping Center. And I understand that three of you in this ministry have been co-laboring with him in that, and that's phenomenal, and thank you for doing that. And that'll be tomorrow night, 7 to 8. The general subject is overcoming adversities and afflictions by persevering in the spiritual life in Jesus Christ. That's quite a title, but it's quite a thing to be discussing. Eaton Park will never be the same. You'll start calling it Park and Eat or something like that. It'll be. Now also, as you know, our two pastors who were ordained have already passed their first year, and the Lord has still kept them on the earth. And they have very, done very well in effectively discharging their call to preach Christ. And I'm very glad to say that today. So this week, in fact, Pam and I are taking our grandsons to the Jonah production. I'm looking forward to seeing the whale come right over the audience. But that, that was their favorite Bible story when I used to read Bible stories to them. Next to the crucifixion and the resurrection, that was their true favorite, but Jonah and the whale. So we're looking very much forward to going there. So this week, pastors Messick and Henry will be bearing the burden, and it is a burden, of the word of the Lord for our congregation. And Brian, who did a spectacular message in my absence last week, in a seamless robe of disclosure that the Holy Spirit's giving to this church, the addition of the kinsman redeemer, in the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ as our kinsman redeemer related to Boaz and Ruth. Wonderful development. And I'm looking forward to part two, where we all get wings. Not chicken wings, but part two coming up Wednesday right here, right on our stage. And then Thursday, Phil Henry's Power Gospel. Pastor Henry will be here. And I know you all like that, and I hope you'll all come out. Bring Christ in you, with you. And I, re- I listened this morning, Phil, to your message on Ricky, Ricky Martin, and Jesus Christ. And it was marvelous because it reminded me, first of all, of Ricky as Ricky Martin, our dear friend and co-laborer. Many of you know him as 
I would say, I'd put him forth at the judgment seat and say, Lord, here's an example. Here's a living epistle of Jesus Christ. And it was very well done, Phil. It was a splendid treatment because it, it really glorified Christ, which is what Ricky wants to do anyways. 2 Corinthians 8.23 says, As for Titus, Paul is speaking of Titus, he is my partner and co-worker serving you. And then he says, as for our brothers, they are the messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. They are the messengers of the churches, the glory of Christ. And we could say that for many, in fact, all of you. You are messengers of the churches and the glory of Christ. And when one member is honored, as in this Power Gospel with Ricky. When one member is honored, the whole body is honored. And I know that you'll be very edified by that. So three men will be bearing the burden of the word this week. And I'll give you a review on Jonah next Sunday, as well as be back for the message. So let's turn to John 17. Is that all the announcements? I know Phil wanted me to uh, wish happy birthday to Clint Hurdle, who turned 60 today, and he does need some cheering, <laughs> some cheering up after the last few games. So maybe we could just trust God for a victory today. That would be a good, good birthday present. We're still fanning out. In fact, all this summer, we might have called fanning out on the divine missions. We're still fanning out. The military strategy is the spearhead. The tip of the spear goes in, then there's a fanning out. That's what I'm doing with the divine missions. The gospel of Paul, which is the gospel of God about his son, who is testified to throughout the Old Testament scriptures. The unchained gospel is about an act of deliverance a divine act of deliverance that does not enlist the hope or the help rather of the creation gone wrong. It's the act of God in Christ for God was in Christ, not forsaking Christ. God was in Christ. God did not forsake Christ on the cross. That was Jesus perception as he identified with the desperate creation. The ultimateness, the ultimate thinking of sin is that God forsakes his creature and Jesus had become sin. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me was not God forsaking him because the scripture says God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. God was in Christ and he offered himself to God without spot through the eternal spirit. The triune God bears the marks of the grief of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and that's where we're really centering in right now. And I cannot duplicate Wednesday's message or Thursday's because I don't have the emotional or mental capability to stay up with that kind of concentration on the crucifixion. It's just impossible. But I do recommend those messages as they'll lead up to today's message. The scripture is very clear that the cross, the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, is a scandalon. Scandal on which we get our word scandal. And Paul mentions that in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 11. 
cross is a scandal. It's a repulsive thing. The crucifixion is the most repulsive, diabolically conceived way of putting a slave or a criminal to death. And the Romans had the idea of doing that. It's the most humiliating death. As we've said this week, those who are crucified are naked, stripped naked. There's no loincloth like we like to religiously imagine. And there is not every kind of abuse is involved both up to the cross and in the crucifixion. And we are to never, never, ever forget not only the death of Jesus Christ, but the instrument of his death. Because he bore a shame that's unspeakable before the glory of the Father raised him to a glory that's indescribable. And that shows more than any other thing the terrible state of wrong that the creation had fallen into and the state of how terribly wrong things are is displayed in that scandal called the cross. If you're under the Holy Spirit, you can't live long without considering the cross. It's an offense to us, and it ought to be an offense. It's a repulsive thing. It's a shameful thing. For God in the flesh endured unspeakable shame, humiliation, abuse of every kind, including sexual abuse by his tormentors. And he has been raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. So it doesn't matter where we've been in our history. It doesn't matter what we've experienced in our past. We aren't to glory in our shame. We are to glory in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is a scandal. It's an offense to preachers who don't preach it. It's an offense to Christians who'd rather live a comfortable American Corinthian kind of life of triumphalism and everything's fine and God wants to prosper you without the adversity of the cross. And that's the shame on the church in America. It's a scandal on. It's an offense. But our avoidance of it is an offense to God. The church's avoidance of it is an offense to God. When Jesus spoke of going to Jerusalem, of being stripped, mocked, scourged, and they did strip entirely the body so they could expose the back and the buttocks to the cat of nine tails, which rip the flesh, and then get down to the skeletal muscles sometimes inducing circulatory failure so that people died before getting to the cross. Even Jesus buckled under the weight of it three times. And I don't want to go into that again because I went into it Wednesday and Thursday. And I don't want to make this a Good Friday show where pastors once a year try to manipulate the emotions of their congregation by making explicit the events of the cross But I do want to emphasize that the cross being a scandal, our avoidance of it is a scandal to God. When Jesus spoke of his going to Jerusalem to be mocked, to be mocked in mock trials, to be scourged, to be spit upon, to give his face to abusers, and he was several hours with the abusing Romans who were out of their discipline entirely, the Roman soldiers who punched and beat him. And abused him in every possible way. And he was speaking of this. That he must go and suffer these things. And be crucified. 
and be raised from the dead on the third day. Peter steps in with his American and Corinthian heroism and says, may God forbid you to do that. And Jesus replied, get behind me, adversary. You are a scandalon to me. Your avoidance of the cross is satanic. Your avoidance of the scandal of it is an offense to God. So as much as the cross is an offense to man, the avoidance of it is an offense to God. So may it never be that I should ever glory in anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. What do you have that you're glorying in about your shameful past, which excuses you from the new way of life in the glory of the Father? If the glory of the Father raised Jesus Christ up from the most humiliating death in which those who are tortured by the cross instrument are so humiliated that they're forced to be the cause of their own death for their writhing on the cross just to get the next breath is ultimately what kills them. And Jesus said, I am a worm and no man. He was perceived that way. And God was in Christ. Believe me. Jesus said, my father is in me. He said that before the cross so that you would know that the father was in him as he endured the cross, despising the shame. But he's now set down, as Pastor Brown's prayer so eloquently put it, at the right hand of the father in the ultimate splendor. He who was crucified in unspeakable shame was raised by indescribable glory and to indescribable glory. But there will never be a forgetfulness about the price that he paid and the humiliation he endured. And he will, of course, bear the scars of that throughout the future ages. So our emphasis on the divine missions comes from the gospel. Because the gospel is an account of an act of divine deliverance. Righteousness of God is not an attribute of God. It's his act, his saving act in Christ, which he desires to display by the gospel. The gospel, therefore, is the divine announcement of a divine deliverance enacted in Christ by the triune God, which delivers the creation from its slavery to corruption delivers history from its nauseating cycle of progress and decline, delivers humanity from slavery to sin, the flesh, and death, and even to the Torah, the law, which became the slave of sin and became one of those supernatural powers. The gospel, then, is a divine deliverance, an act of divine deliverance to deliver a creation gone terribly wrong. This act of divine deliverance does not enlist the cooperation of the creation gone wrong. That would be insane. That would be out of logic. That would be away from logic. It would be illogic. And so that divine deliverance consists of two divine missions, as we have been studying. And divine missions have to be distinguished in your thinking from divine processions. And I want to bring that up again just for a moment. 
The divine processions are eternal and internal to God. When it says that Jesus Christ was begotten of the Father, that doesn't mean that he pre- that the Father preceded the Son, and then at some point in eternity or time, he begot the Son. The eternal begetting was eternal both by the Father and the Son. The Father who begot and the Son who was begotten, neither one preceded the other. There's an equality of substance and essence in the Father and the Son. The spiration or the breathing of the Holy Spirit is a divine procession. He eternally was breathed by the Father and the Son. He was breathed or spirated. And he was, as the Father and the Son eternally breathed, the Spirit was eternally breathed out. That's a divine procession. They are eternal. They are internal. And the triune God are three distinct persons. We mentioned this week that in John 20, 22, when Jesus breathed upon his disciples, he said, receive the Holy Spirit. And God was in Christ. The Father was in Christ, breathing as Christ was breathing. And this will make more sense, I think, if you get Wednesday and Thursday's message to back up and support these messages. The divine missions are to be distinguished from the divine processions because they're very much temporal. And in one way, at least, they're external. The word that we find twice in Galatians, Galatians 4.4, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, ex apostello. They got the word apostle in there for sent one, ex apostello. It's external. It's a mission of God in which he sends a divine person. And then there is the same in Galatians 4, 6. He has sent ex apostello, the spirit of his son, into our hearts, crying out, Abba, Father, which is the statement Jesus made under his most severe duress and distress of soul in Gethsemane. Sometimes we get to a place of dire straits in our life. There's only one prayer to be prayed, and it's Abba. Father, and he hears us. So the divine missions are temporal, and they are also external. That's why the eternal word was made flesh. The eternal word was with God. The eternal word always was God. In the beginning, which is a beginningless beginning. But the eternal word was made flesh in time. In history, at the heart of history, in the fullness of time. Please notice that. In the fullness of time. Time. He was conceived in the Virgin Mary by the Spirit of the Father. Matthew one twenty. At a moment in time. In a particular moment in history. He became flesh to redeem not only all flesh, but all of creation. He came into time to redeem time itself. To redeem history from an evil past and to redeem the future from an evil catastrophe. He became flesh, not only to redeem all flesh, 
but all of creation. He came into time to redeem time, into history to redeem history, including your history, including your history and mine. So he came into time. This is noted especially in John. There's not only time that he came into, but there's a particular hour, hora, it says in the scripture, an aura, a time, a moment, an hour, in which he would go to the cross and suffer in his crucifixion and die, be put to death as the lambs of the Old Testament. And so, for that, we can look at John 7.30, John 8.20, 12 12.27, 13.1, Jesus knowing that his hour was not yet. Jesus knowing, said to his mother at the wedding of Cana, my hour has not yet come. John 13, he knows that his hour is coming. He tells the disciples many things from 13.1 to 16.33, closing with, in this world, you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Having said these things, we're at John 17, 1 now. Jesus spoke these things, looked up to heaven, and said, Father, the hour has come. He came into time. He lived a life marked by time, marked by hours, days, minutes, Months, years, the days of his flesh. Glorify your son so that the son may glorify you. Verse 2, for you gave him authority over all flesh. He became flesh in John 1.14. And God gave him salvific authority over all flesh. You gave him authority over all flesh. Because this is because he mediated the covenant of God, the covenant of God which he made to all flesh after the catastrophic flood in Genesis 9. You gave him authority over all flesh so that he may give eternal life to all you have given him. Now, I don't know about you, but I never saw this before recently when it says he would have given me authority over all flesh in order to give eternal life to everyone you gave me authority over. Sounds like all flesh to me, ultimately, ultimately. This is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God. And listen to this divine mission statement, the one whom you sent Jesus Christ, divine mission one. I have glorified you on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me. This week we studied exactly what that means. Jesus, who was crucified and who died, was raised from the dead by what? The glory of the Father. The glory of the Father raised him from the dead. Why? Because God was in Christ. And there never was a time when God was not in Christ. 
So then, creation, especially rational creation, especially humankind, is tempted in its direst straits when it hits its most extreme duress to ask God why he's forsaken me. Why have you forsaken me? As this week I imagined those 10 people who died in the back of an 18-wheeler in San Antonio, Texas, a long, prolonged, agonizing death, smothering in heat. What do you think they might have been tempted to say as they started dying one by one? Why have you forsaken us? And address that prayer to God. So when Jesus hit the extreme of his suffering at Calvary, he identified with creation in its most terrible desperation. And he actually perceived what creation thinks they perceive that God has forsaken it. When he hasn't. Now, get me wrong, the father not forsaking the son did not mitigate or soften his sufferings at all. It only shows that the sufferings were also endured by the father and by the spirit. If the spirit can be grieved by our mouth and by our evil, corrupt communication, rather than edifying one another, if the spirit can be grieved whereby we have been sealed to the day of redemption, if the Holy Spirit of God can be grieved by our sinfulness, how much more do you think the Holy Spirit was grieved when the Son became sin for us? We're talking about a Trinitarian act of salvation here. We're talking about the Father and the Son and the Spirit and their saving act to deliver a creation from a state of terrible wrong to make it gloriously right. And right there at the heart of the matter is the crucified Christ, a crucified Messiah, an offense to the religious, an offense to the pious, an offense to the spiritually gifted who wants to forget that part of the whole thing. When Jesus said, do this in remembrance of my death, he didn't say do this in remembrance of my resurrection when he gave us the communion service. He said, do this in remembrance of my death until I come. Because the resurrection and the glorious universal horizon of redemption are meaningless. And that's why I resisted the so-called doctrine of universalism. Because universalists saw this beautiful picture of God redeeming everything, but forgot the center of the whole thing, which is the scandal of the cross. Therefore, that doctrine of universalism stinks to high heaven to me. I hate it. Because this whole universal breadth of the salvation, the horizon before us of a universal, glorious redemption of all creation in all of its times, to me is utterly meaningless without considering the scandalous, repulsive center of the humiliation that my creator, my redeemer, my savior, my God endured. So you can talk about spirit and the gifts of the spirit 
and the prosperity of the spirit and this and that. And you can talk about it all day long. But if you avoid the offense of the cross, you're not even being filled by the spirit. The spirit is not guiding you. I doubt that you're under the filling of the spirit. I say this to all churches. I say this especially to myself. As with all of us, Jesus' days in the flesh were marked by time. As shown in verses like the following, from the God's word to the nations translation, it, because it simply gives us the verses that are familiar to us today, the time. It doesn't say the third hour, the ninth hour, the so-and-so hour. It says this, in John one thirty-nine, Jesus told them, come and you will see. So they went to where he was staying and spent the rest of the day with him. It was about 10 o'clock in the morning. His life was marked by time. When did he say that? Come and see where I live. About 10 o'clock in the morning. They spent the rest of the day with him. That's a long day. What a day was spent with the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal word made flesh, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. They heard that first. Oh, so you're the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Where are you staying? He said, come and I'll show you. You don't have to go to Travelocity. I'll show you. Ultimately, we know where he was staying. He was in his father. And his father was in him. And the day will come when you will be in me and I will be in you. And the father will be in me and in all of you. And the day is coming when all of creation will experience God being all in all. Or how about John 4, 6? Jesus in Samaria, in the town of Sychar. Jacob's well was there, says the GWN translation. Jesus sat down by the well because he was tired from traveling. The word had become flesh. Not the flesh that is the power over us in the Adamic ontology. This means simply humanity, human, human flesh, the body. He was tired from traveling. Then it says the time was about 6 o'clock in the evening. That's when he met the woman at the well. John nineteen fourteen. it says the time was about 6 o'clock in the morning. On the Friday of the Passover festival, Pilate said to the Jews... Look, here's your king. But all those days, all those weeks, years, led to a particular hour, the hour of his crucifixion, then the moment of his death. Jesus came into time, lived a a life marked by time, by hours, days, weeks, months, years, until the moment, until the hour. Luke 23, 44, around noon of a certain day in a certain month of a certain year. Around noon, darkness came over the entire land and lasted until three in the afternoon. He came into time To redeem time. What do you think it means when it says, redeem the time because the days are evil in Ephesians 5.16? It has to do with this. 
He came to restore the years that the locust has eaten, as Joel 2.25 poetically put it, the years that were wasted as we look back and say, well, that was a wasted year. No, it wasn't. He came to restore that year. Years that saw natural and man-made catastrophes, the seeming endless years of fallen creation, redeemed, of sinful humanity, of death. He came into history to redeem history from its cycle of progress and decline. And Because I said I would talk about note 738, I'll quote a little piece of it. Stauffer noted in note 738, tells you how many notes he's got. In his New Testament theology, he said this, and I want to say it twice because it, this impacted me strongly. It says, Christ takes up universal history, which since Adam has been set on the way to death, so as to give it henceforth an all-inclusive end in salvation. That pretty much sums up a lot of things about the gospel. I'll say that again. Christ takes up universal history, which since Adam has been set on the way to death, so as to give it henceforth an all-inclusive end in salvation. And he doesn't just drop it there. He gives us Ephesians 1.20 and following for the next few verses, 120 to 123. He gives us Ephesians 2.14 and following. He gives us Ephesians 3.10. So he came into creation to redeem it from its slavery to corruption, Romans eight nineteen to 23. He became flesh to redeem all flesh, and he became human to redeem all of humanity from its enslavement to the elements of the cosmos, as Paul called it in Galatians 4, which are the superhuman powers of sin, death, the flesh, which is the impulsive desire of the flesh, which no person can gain victory over, not even Epictetus, the great Stoic philosopher. Because the impulsive desire of the flesh is not just sensual or sexual or greed. It is the will of the creature pitted against the will of God. For if we are in the flesh or under the control of this power, we cannot please God. We have a radical incapacity, the flesh, a superhuman power. And the Torah itself, the law, which became enslaving and cursing of all mankind because of sin and because of the impulsive desire of the flesh. So Jesus was born of a woman in the fullness of time. And there was also a particular hour for his suffering. His crucifixion and his death, followed by his burial and his resurrection, ascension and enthronement, all occurred in time. The eternal word was eternally spoken by the Father. The word did not speak. He was spoken by the Father. In these last days, God has spoken to us in his son. In what last days? These last days. God has spoken to us in his son. 
That's Hebrews 1, 2. Whom he has appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe, which literally means he made the ages of time. The eternal word made flesh never spoke either in his flesh on his own initiative. I don't speak on my own initiative. Why? Because I'm the word that the Father has spoken. I don't speak on my own initiative. What I hear, that's what I speak. So when he breathed and and said, receive the Spirit, the Father was in him breathing. The Father in him is the glory that raised him from the dead. Now glorify me, Father. Glorify me. And he does so by raising him from dead. The dead. It's the same glory of the Father, which brings us into a new way of life. People glory in their shame and use that as an excuse to enter into the glorious life, walking in newness of life by the glory of the Father. So, the eternal word made flesh never spoke unless he heard the Father. And never did unless he saw the Father do. And that includes the cross. Obedience to the death of the cross was Christ doing what he saw the Father do. Demonstrating the love of God the Father for his creation. Likewise, the Spirit did not breathe In the divine procession, he was breathed by the Father and the Son in the eternal procession. This is called, theologically, and I won't get into that today, passive spiration. We've been in that in John's gospel. He was likewise breathed and thus sent in the divine mission, even as the Son was incarnated. But always remember this, he was incarnated to be instarrated, crucified. Because he was going to take creation with him, take time with him, take history with him, take all humanity with him through crucifixion, burial, resurrection, exaltation, enthronement, glory. That's the big picture. But it's all centered in the very small picture of a crucified man on the top of a skull-shaped hill between two other criminals. And I'm saying that with the perception of those who walked by and cursed him and threw dung at him and garbage at him and insults at him, particularly the religious leaders. And it was known that one of the mockeries was the mockery of the genitalia and the exposed bodies. Because crucified, you have no control over bodily discharges. And every imaginable thing that you would imagine you'd hate to have happen to you in public happened to him. But that's how desperate his creation had become. That's how desperate the pious in the world were. That's how terribly wrong religion had become. That's how terribly wrong human government had become. God's justice, therefore, is not a retribution thing. 
God's justice sees what's terribly wrong and tries, and in fact doesn't try, but does. He sets it gloriously right. And the only way to do it, in his mind, was the cross. The son was incarnated to be instarated or crucified, sent on a mission, a temporal mission, a mission in time, a mission into time, a mission into this present evil age, an infiltration mission into the most desperately dangerous place. You say, what do you mean desperately dangerous? We're in this evil age. It's desperately dangerous to enter an age in which you are the single most object of its hostility, its antipathy, its hatred, its ressentiment. He entered into this present evil age. It's a mission that's temporal but has everlasting results. In the divine missions, the Son is begotten by the Spirit in a woman. And the Spirit is breathed by the Father and the Son into people in the second divine mission. The Spirit is breathed into people into people who from the moment of receiving the Spirit become human participants in the divine mission of the Spirit, which is in essence an extension of the mission of the Son. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. He breathes upon them. This is long before Pentecost, incidentally. He breathed on them. He said, receive the Spirit. And he says, as the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. You now participate in the divine mission as a human participant. All of you do. And so, this people, collectively, is called the called out community. Ecclesia. The called out ones. Now, in Ecclesiology 101, if I were to teach a theology class, Ecclesiology 101, or the study of the church 101, I just taught it. The called-out community, the body of Christ. That's Ecclesiology 101. But Ecclesiology 102 is what I've been teaching here. That includes, involves the study of the Messianic community as a provisional community, a proleptic community as just the beginning of what is to be a universal eschatological messianic human community. The church is just a foretaste. It's just a kind of first fruits. And if the first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the first fruits is holy, then the whole harvest is holy. And Christ is the first fruits. So the universal harvest is holy because God has made him to be for us, the human race, holiness, sanctification. If the root is holy, then so are the branches. If the first fruits is holy, then so is the whole batch. Talking Romans eleven sixteen, we're going to Romans pretty soon, not today. So in all of this, we must never, and I mean never, I mean never forget the crucifixion of Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And that doesn't mean he was crucified back there, so let's forget it and let's get into the resurrection. He said, no, we consider very much his crucifixion, even though it is in the past, he is still the Christ who was crucified. 
He still bears in his body the marks of the passion and the suffering. And there'll be something about him and something about the Father. For if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. When you see him, Jesus, you'll see him with the scars. And to see him is to see the Father. There's no way to see the Father unless you see the crucified man, the man Christ Jesus, of whom seeing you see the Father. These truths stretch the limits of our human capacity of reason. They go beyond reason. Not into an irrationality, but to a super-reasonability, a super-logic of God. We must never forget his death, the means of his death, the repulsive and unspeakable shame of crucifixion. That which probably the majority of assemblies of messianic people today, and they are God's people, are trying desperately not to remember. Unless it's symbolically in the Eucharist. We must never forget the instrument of his death, the cross. And we must glory in the cross, the symbol of utmost shame, the scandalon that is the cross. If we're operational in this new way of life by the Spirit in Romans 7, 6, by the glory of the Father in Romans 6, 4, we must never forget. And we will never forget. Not in this life. It's always the one who died. And we will not forget in the next life either. It will even be more apparent. It's always the one who died in utter humiliation and shame. Who was raised by the glory of the Father. And so have you. You died with him. You were buried with him by baptism into his death. And like him, you were raised by the glory of the Father. And the same spirit that rose Christ from the dead lives in your very mortal members and shall quicken or make alive your mortal body. That's what we look forward to. It's the glory of the Father which also raises us up out of a life of shame and slavery to sin. And that life of shame includes not only the receivers of abuse, but the givers of it. Raised by the glory of the Father. It's the glory of the Father which raises us up out of a life of shame and slavery to sin. To live a new way of life rather than glorying in our shame and continuing under the whip-cracking master called sin the slave master named sin. This is the divine Trinitarian act of deliverance by the self-revealing God. This is the righteousness that's being apocalyptically unveiled by the unchained gospel, the gospel that Paul preached. The slaughtered and enthroned lamb that in closing is the primary symbol of this act of divine deliverance, and that's what we've been aiming at since John 1 one in this place called the Alamo, a place of 
my last stand. However, God interprets the word last, however, is his own doing. Listen carefully. The slaughtered and enthroned lamb is the primary symbol of the act of divine deliverance of things set right. Because the lamb who was slaughtered, raised, elevated, and enthroned is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world in John 129. In his death, he took away what was terribly wrong with the world. And by his resurrection, he set things wonderfully right. As Paul put it, he was delivered over or delivered up for our sins and raised up or resurrected for our justification or to set us all right. Therefore, my testimony, I stand before you as one who is justified by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And through his faithfulness. And he's granted me and granted you a share in his faithfulness to God. As we'll see as I close. In his death he took away what was terribly wrong with the world. And by his resurrection he set things wonderfully right. As Hebrews 9.26 says Christ appeared once and for all. He appeared once and for all. At the culmination of the ages, and all the ages of time culminated, the center of history, he appeared to put away sin, to put away sin by the offering of himself. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself to God without blemish and spot as a defectless lamb, a perfect lamb. Purify your conscience from dead works to serve in this new way of life the living God as his priests. Hebrews 9.14 compared with Romans 7.6. Put away sin by the offering of himself. And as John the baptizer said, look, there's the lamb. Of God who takes away the sin of the world. First Peter agrees. First Peter is an epistle profoundly influenced by Paul. You could almost say Paul wrote it in a way. It is profoundly influenced by Paul. First Peter 1 18. Peter wrote this, and it took a long time to kind of get this because you can't translate Greek verses. By looking up every word in a lexicon and expect you're getting it right. There's a sense that only the Holy Spirit can breathe into a verse. And that's what I strive for in my exegesis. I don't strive for it. I strive to hear what the Spirit is saying in it. But I'm, this is the best I have right now. First Peter 1.18, for you know that not with corruptible silver or gold were you redeemed or bought back from slavery from the idolatrous way of life handed down from your ancestors. But with the precious blood of Christ, 1 Peter 1.19, like that of a lamb without defect or imperfection, 
who was foreknown indeed. He's referring back to what Jesus spoke of in John 17, where we started. Father, restore to me the glory that we had in the beginning. The glorious fellowship of the Son with the Father before his incarnation, before his instauration. He was foreknown indeed, he says, meaning he was obviously known in his pre-incarnate state with the Father of the glory with the Father of which he speaks in John 17, 24. But he was foreknown indeed, but who was manifested. This word is also very important in our study. Phanerao. Phanerao is a word that is almost like apocalypto. It's a synonym for apocalypto. It means to be apocalyptically revealed. He who was indeed foreknown... And who was manifested in the last times. This really echoes Hebrews 1-2. In these last days, God has spoken to us in his Son, whom he has appointed heir over all things and by whom he created the ages or made the ages or made history or made the universe also. So notice in verse 20, he was truly foreknown, exclamation point, indeed. And who was manifested in the last times for you. For you. Through him, listen to this one, 21. Through him, you are faithful to God. Through him, you are faithful to God. It says in some cases you believed in God, but it means through him you are faithful to God. Through Christ's faithfulness, you are faithful to God. You share and participate in his fidelity. Through him, you are faithful to God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory. Compare this with earlier messages. He was resurrected from the dead by the glory of the Father, and by that same glory... You may walk in this new way of life. Not the old idolatrous way of life. Not by continuing in slavery to sin, to the flesh, and to the elements of the present evil age. Which is the drumbeat set for this generation. And which most people are marching to in lockstep. No matter what political extremes they're on. It doesn't matter. The funny part of that is whatever political extreme you're in. You're still marching according to the steps set by the drumbeat of the prince of this age who has been deposed and thrown out. The enemy's laughing at both sides of the political hatred sphere because he got everybody to hate. Think of it. It's the end of a nation. Resantamon is the end of a nation. This gospel is the recovery of this generation. The slaughtered and enthroned lamb is the true symbol and reality of apocalyptic and therefore of all theology and all the scripture. Anyone that's going to write a theology better know this and better know it well. 
The slaughtered and enthroned lamb is the heart of John's apocalypse. And it's the heart of the apocalypse that is all of Paul's epistles together as one unity. 1 Corinthians 2, 2, 5, 7, 15, 25. In both cases, John and Paul, the apocalypse reveals Jesus, God's son, in his universally saving magnificence. And where we're going next is doxologies. Doxologies are the attributing of glory with praise and thanksgiving to God. The most famous one in Romans is 1133 to 36, and guess where that doxology comes? The attributing of glory to God for his act of deliverance in Christ. Guess where that came from? Romans 1132, when God shuts up all in disobedience that he might have mercy upon all. That gave birth to the greatest doxology in Paul's epistles, which we'll study in the near future. I've got a little time to think about this one first. Of the ecstatic doxology of Paul in order to prepare you for what's coming, previews of coming attractions, in Romans 11:33 to 36, a hymn of praise from the apostle to the pagans spins off from Romans 11:32 and from Romans 11:26 when he says that all Israel will be saved, which every Jew would understand if all Israel is saved, then all creation is saved. Every Jew would have understood that that was taught. When the totality of the nations come under the lordship of Christ and all Israel is saved, of this Cosman wrote this, and I think this is fitting to close our message today. Cosman, Ernst Cosman, wrote this. Since all theology is defined by the distinction between the glorious God and the fallen creature, and thus as soteriology, Christology, and ecclesiology, the divine ways and saving counsels cannot be grasped by the reason and insight of the world as it seeks to transcend itself. I'll say that again. Since all theology is defined by the distinction between the glorious God and the fallen creature, and thus in, as soteriology, the study of salvation, Christology, the study of Christ, ecclesiology, the study of the church, the divine ways and saving counsels cannot be grasped by the reason and insight of the world as it seeks to transcend itself. And he says the doxology recognizes this. This is what a doxology does. What's left after this act of deliverance? Worship. What's left in our response to an act enacted by God, totally by God, the triune God for us? Worship, doxology, gratitude. As Jesus said, I thank you, Father. Lord of heaven and earth, that you have revealed these things, not to the sophisticated and the educated, but to those who, like children, in humility, just receive your self-revelation. Romans, or Matthew eleven twenty-five. And so all creation can only stand in worshipful awe before its creator. Doxology is what remains as a creaturely response when salvation has been enacted purely and solely by the gracious actions of the triune God. All of creation can only stand in worshipful awe before the creator when its salvation will have been completed. 
in the apocatastasis pantong, in the consummation of the instauration, the final universal actualization of the impact of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we have doxologies in Revelation 4.11, 5.13, Romans 11.33-36. In this present juncture of two ages, the evil age and the messianic age, both of which are concurrently running now in this world. God is generally understood only as he is distinct from creation. He's understood by the proleptic community or the church as Jesus and by the spirit. But when we see him, we will see him as he is in himself and not just in distinction from creation. We will see him as he is in himself. And we will be like him. Even the proleptic messianic community, the church, the body of Christ, sees through a glass darkly, obscurely. But then face to face. Then face to face. And we will be We will know then even as we are known because we will know in the way that God knows. We will know by an unobscured revelation without internal or external obstacles. Until then, faith, hope, and love remain on the flot, the forward line of troops in this conflict. And the greatest of these is love. So let's use our freedom that we have in Christ. Freedom that includes a liberated will. Let's use that freedom to serve one another by love. We thank you, Father, for this opportunity. You have been doing this, not us. You have been, by the Spirit and the Word, penetrating this time, penetrating the consciousness of this congregation with the gospel and it's brought its revelatory and saving effects with it to us saving effects that reverberate through us to others through our speech through our living epistleship through our being messengers of this in our everyday life because we can't escape everyday life where we confront you father in every detail Bring this word home to us, Father. Let it run over internal obstacles as well as external ones. Make us walking, living epistles of Christ, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.